Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How's work is one of the first questions in many conversations, usually followed by a swift fine or same as usual. But behind the stock replies run the currents of ambition achieved or thwarted by colleagues who are, of course, vastly less reasonable than we are ourselves. All of this in an era when human stress comes with the added delicacies of all those multi-threaded emails and chats inviting a dozen different replies. Somehow, somewhere in this human work jungle, we need to rub along with our peers too. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week, we're asking, what's the secret to a great working relationship? My guest is the psychotherapist Esther Perel. She's spent a career unravelling the tangled knots of human relationships. She's the author of Mating in Captivity and The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity, drawing on decades of counselling couples and families. And her podcast, Where Should We Begin, invited her audience to listen into the secrets of the consulting room. Now she's turned her attention to the psychodramas of the office in a new podcast, How's Work? Hello, Esther. Hello, good morning. We have to build a relationship now, okay? Yes, you and I are going to <laughs> build one very, uh, very quickly just uh, in, in our conversation and, and highlight what are some of the key ingredients of thriving relationships. Well, fortunately, we've got at least one expert in this conversation. But let me ask first, Esther, what led you to therapy and then into treating couples? You seem to be fascinated by relationships, by decoding them and helping fix them. What led to that? It's a beautiful question. I think that what has always been clear to me is that it was the quality of our relationships that determined the quality of our lives. As a child, I felt it. If I got along well with my friends, if my friendships and my relationships at home were good, I felt okay. If my relationships went sour, I just thought that the whole world had capsized. If I didn't feel good about myself, it often projected onto my relationships with my friends in school and so forth. So the idea that relationships are an anchor to how we live our lives was established very early before I ever had a one sentence to kind of highlight it. And then what I got also very interested in, because I was a child of refugees and because I have lived in multiple cultures at the same time, I always looked at how large sociocultural and political changes affect the way that we live our relational lives. Are we living in a framework where relationships are really central? We are educated for interdependence, as I was, or are we living in a culture that much more emphasizes self-reliance and autonomy, which is a very different relational perspectives. All of this I, lo I looked at all the time, even without having a, a proper vocabulary. And when I became a therapist, which because I found the, the landscape of relationship endlessly fascinating, and I traveled a lot, and I could see it in multiple cultures, 
family systems was really a, a, a uniquely new development, switching from the individualistic focus of one individual to looking at the person in context. You know, we live in relational systems all the time. And then from there, understanding families, I became fascinated with couples because something began to change once divorce entered and once our expectations of marriage changed, which is that this is the first time in the history of humankind that the survival of the family depends on the relative happiness of the couple. We don't have to fear excommunication. We have some places where women have enough economic independence to be able to leave. We have in the West no-fold divorce laws. Basically, the only thing that keeps people together is not the institution itself, but the quality of the relationship and the emotional life that exists between the partners. And that's what gave couples therapy a whole new centrality and a whole new meaning in modern relationships. And you had a background from a refugee family. Listeners will have picked up a, a bit of a transatlantic accent uh, as you're speaking to us. Tell us about that. So my parents are both Polish. They were Polish Jews who both were in concentration camps throughout the entire World War II. They were refugees of the Holocaust. They were the only survivors of their entire family. They arrived to Belgium by accident. They remained illegal refugees in Belgium for five years, actually, before they ever got permits to stay. All of that was very much part of the DNA of my family. Loss of relationships, the loss of the community how you replace, how you learn to trust again, how you deal with betrayal, how you deal with with creating new communities. So I watch them, you know, weave back a relational fabric to their life when they were both left completely alone. I mean, their marriage was a marriage of I'm alone, you're alone, I have nothing, you have nothing, let's get married as we come out of the camps. So watching them rebuild gave me, from very early on, without articulating it to myself, a a, a perspective of, A, the importance of relationship, two, how you repair, how you deal with rupture and repair, um, and how you learn to trust again. And all of these things I use in couples therapy and I now use in looking at relational systems in the workplace because these are the key themes and they go into every relational system, home and work. You've moved your work from being a therapist, which is something I suppose a lot of us associate with a room, a very private room with the door closed and a box of tissues on a a, a table where people come to share what's going on deep inside them. But you've now moved from that into being a a podcaster, which, you know, as I know week in, week out, is the ultimate expression of wanting to communicate with people and people wanting to communicate back to you about what they've heard, what they liked, what they didn't like. What made you think it was a good idea to open up that world, to cross that bridge? I never knew podcasts before. I was not a podcast listener. I only knew that what happens in my office is fascinating that couples therapy is sometimes the best theater in town, so is family therapy, that I can't talk about it, and that there was something about this has to leave my room. It's too small a space for two important 
a material, a content. And I didn't know how to take it out because I didn't want to compromise my work with patients. So, and I didn't want to work with actors because I felt that that also takes, changes the situation. We knew after one session that this, this was gripping, this was going to democratize couples therapy, this was going to make it available to people all over the globe who can't pay for this and have no access to that. And what I didn't know is how much it would become a public health campaign on relationships and how much it actually would become an education technology for so many people about what is this landscape of relationship today? What are the complexities? How do we experience them? And when you are invited in the office to hear another couple behind closed doors, what they really are saying to each other, not what they're showing on social media, not the, not the posturing and not the curation of their life, but the actual experience, even if this is not your own personal drama if the, and you've never experienced what this particular couple is going through, you relate to the themes. That is the thing that everybody's talking about is, I, I've never lived this, but the, in every session there is something that is relevant for me. It's fascinating to be a, a fly on the wall, but there is a sense of slightly being let in or even in intruding into conversations which we're more used to thinking of as very private. I've never had to persuade anybody. We have thousands of applicants. People, we put one ad on Instagram or, or, or Facebook and, um, and people just come in droves. We are actually in the position of really carefully, carefully selecting the people, making sure that they understand that they will be heard, that their voices will not be changed, their names and identifiable features will be taken out, but somebody very close to them may recognize them. And I think the people do it because on some level they think if it can help others, it actually creates a collective experience over something that we typically live in isolation and often in a kind of privatization of our problems. You know, the voyeurism that you allude to is there, but what is really more important is that when you listen deeply to others, A, you feel less alone, and B, it's actually yourself that you see in your own mirror, which is really why I never wanted to have it on video, but just audio. It's intimate. It's sometimes too intimate. As you say, you feel like you're in these people's bedroom. But what happens today is that the expectations for couples' life are unprecedented. They are so high. And most people have no idea how to get there. And everybody's wondering if what they're experiencing is also happening at the neighbor's house. You don't live in a village where you can hear all the fights and all the makeup of your neighbors next door. So you have no idea. Today, your best friends can come and tell you that they are breaking up and you didn't even see it coming. So there is a creation of a virtual village. People are not having an experience of being intrusive or voyeuristic. People are having an experience of being less lonely and less isolated. It's the opposite. Now, what about how this translates into the workplace and how does the practice of couples therapy work when you're dealing with people who come to you with a particular tension with a, a workmate or indeed if you were to come into my office which is of course a haven of contentment and, and happiness at <laughs> least happy outwardly <laughs> everything is different and yet all of them <laughs> Right, you're in, you're in. Sandra is producing this. She's got her, her hand in the air and her thumb up. So I'm afraid you've just been hired. Where do you start in terms of making the couples therapy experience you have work when it comes to every workplace feeling very different and work problems perhaps seeming sometimes even a bit more trivial? And that's why we feel so frustrated. 
the reason I started to talk about work is actually because co-founders and family businesses were coming to me for years. This was actually not new. What was new is not what I am doing. It's the fact that the workplace has understood the importance of relationships at a level that is unprecedented. The bottom line used to be about efficiency and productivity and optimization and all of that. And now there is a new bottom line and it does have to do with relational intelligence because no amount of work or, or purpose or free food or anything is going to compensate for sour relationships. And people want from work today purpose and a sense of belonging and a sense of meaning and fulfillment, things that were not part of the expectations in the workplace. And they also want it while they're sometimes only staying for two years. So it's an enormous amount of personal identity-related uh, expectations that are now being projected onto our work experiences. So the workplace came to find me. What people bring are some of the same things. Why? Because I think that we all grow up with a relationship history, a relationship resume, narratives about what relationships are about in our lives. It's communicated to us by our family, our school, our community, our country. And we bring that legacy, that invisible diary comes with us to work. It's like when people say you have to bring your whole self to work, I typically say that we already do that. And we do it in conscious and unconscious ways. It's not just the blatant stuff. So when I am discussing about why I was not included in this meeting, and if I start to have really intense feelings about it, it may be interesting to find out that maybe I have some experience with the subject of exclusion, of not being included, of my opinion not being taken seriously. And that, that didn't begin, not, not in this job and not even in my previous job. I carry a certain freight about that. If I am a person who is micromanaging all the time, who makes sure, you know, I complain that I have to do everything, but I'm incapable of letting anybody else step in and do it because nobody can do it as well as me. Sometimes it's helpful to know that this is not just about the here and now, actually. This is about how the past blurs with the present and gives it a heft and a freight that actually begins to make sense of it. Otherwise, you wonder, why is he bent so, so bent out of shape about this? What's the big deal? The big deal is is the history that sits behind it. But this it sounds very broad, but also you could say a bit abstract. So is it possible to measure whether relationships in a workforce are thriving, given that in any organisation you're going to have people bringing a lot of their personal experiences from the past, as you point out, and some of that can be accommodated? And frankly, in order to get through the day and get the product onto the production line or provide the service that you're providing, you can't do all of, of those things. So how do you measure what success is? There are a few criterias that show you if a company culture has relationships that, that are conducive to actually do the work. <laughs> you know, some places are so contaminated sometimes that you're, it's no surprise that people don't do the work. What are some of these ingredients? It's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to ask for help. There is a collegiality. That is an old word, a sense of solidarity. And people are there together to help each other rather than people are hiding from each other and competing behind each other's back. Or when there is an issue, people are able to just speak about it two seconds, two minutes, clear the air and move on rather than 
as a company culture, in order to deal with conflict, the best way we found is to make sure that every time there's a problem with someone, we just move them from one department to another. That's a nice conflict-avoiding culture on a company level. What should companies and managers then be doing to, to work on what we now call their emotional capital. It's almost like we, we found the words for it before we found the practice for it in most of, of office life, I, I would suggest. So could, uh, you know, give me the, the beginnings of, of what we ought to think about differently. Look, I think the first thing is companies have CFOs, they have CMOs, they have all kinds of Cs, and very few of them have CROs, Chief Relationship Officers which means you actually take the subject of the relational culture seriously rather than just give it lip service and use it only when there is crisis. That's number one. Number two is you introduce it on the onboarding. You say, in our company, this is the relationship culture. It's part of, you know, you you have a benefit package. Well, you also have a chart that tells you what are some of the norms of the way that we relate here. And then there is a way that people quickly get a sense of what are the norms here. And so you become overt about those norms. Like any relationship management, it starts with relational self-awareness. It's the ability to help people, you know, when people are examining processes, they have tools for knowing how are these processes put in place and are they effective. But the same thing applies to relationship. What are the processes around relationships here? And are we are we living up to what we say we're doing? And where does technology and the changing state of many of our workplaces, probably almost all of our workplaces in some way, how is that changing and what does that then do to the human element and to the psychology of a workplace? Look, um, technology, uh, virtual onboarding, efficiency, optimization, automation, all of this makes for, you know, great advances, but it also creates major fissures and vulnerabilities around relational touch points. I mean, in the end, people are having a harder time to go into the office of the other person and actually look at them and talk to them. So you can have a hundred back and forth emails that lend itself to massive amounts of misunderstandings or Slack or wherever you communicate. What helps on the efficiency front doesn't always help on the human front. And that means the ability to live with the discomforts of the complexities of relationships. That's always been there. There's nothing new about that. People have feelings. People get hurt. People need to be reassured. People need to know that that they matter, etc., etc. And when that is taken out, because you can go through an entire process of applying for a job and not talk to another human being, There are consequences. There are gains, but there are also major consequences. There are a lot of people who really wouldn't see their relationship with their colleagues as being the primary driver of what they contribute to the business, to the bottom line, to the endeavor, whatever it is. Now, it might be nice if they did, but we've all worked with people. In fact, we've probably been people with whom other people said, well, I don't really think they're great at managing this kind of situation or that kind of person. But they may still be contributing a lot to their companies. And that would also particularly seem to be so in the tech sector, where, frankly, a lot of senior managers seem to be very, very bad at managing or dealing with people indeed, and yet build something of value. How do you deal with that kind of paradox? I think that what you're highlighting is a major cultural change. Yeah. So on the one hand, there are people that say a job needs to be done, get on with it, you know, and how you feel is not the most important thing right now. That is one culture. Then you have, in a few years, the majority of the workforce will be millennial. 
And they come with a different sense about how you get me to do the best of me. They have expectations not just about getting the, work, the job done. They have expectations about wanting this job to help them become the best version of themselves. So even their notion of what, a, what is expected from a manager and what is expected in feedback sessions are completely different. And I think that what we have at this moment is a very important intergenerational conversation. I come from that generation too that says, you know, what you, you know not, not everything you're feeling is so important. There is a bigger purpose here. Dead on with it and just, you know, deal with this later. This is not for the workplace. But there is a whole other generation, my children included for that matter, that are looking at this quite differently. They are motivated differently. And I think that what we are seeing is that shift. Tech companies highlight it, but I don't think it is only in tech companies at all. There are new companies emerging that are really about people first. That word itself, you know, is a, is, tells you something about how the workplace is itself redefining um, what it stands for and what it wants to, to accomplish. And it's, you straddle that. Where do you think that leaves the role of the founder, the leader? Uh, if we look, at, a lot of that seems to be being debunked, including among some of the, the company names that would, until very recently, have been seen as absolutely at the forefront of what they're doing. At WeWork, for example, uh, in the, the United States and beyond, at Uber, is it time for an end to the cult of of, of the founder? Or, I mean, really, I'm wondering how much you actually want to challenge the structure of companies as well as deal with the well-being of employees. Founders have always existed. You know, there were Rockefellers before, there were Goldman Sachs before, there were uh, loads of, you know, companies. So there's always been a name, and those names were usually the family business name, actually, because the, the primary structure of, of work and companies was family-driven. I think what we definitely know is that founders may have had a good idea. That doesn't mean that they know how to run a company or manage people. And often what is really important is for them to understand that you may, a founder is not necessarily a CEO or a COO or, or a person who can run a company. And you need to bring in people. Diversity in companies is not only about the backgrounds of the people. It's really about the, re, the skills, professional skills, relational skills that people can bring in a company and to have really the multiple ingredients that you need. I am very, very clear that many founders probably could have left a little sooner. It's very hard when people create something for them to understand that creating it doesn't mean that you know how to run it and accept that without thinking I'm being pushed aside. And the people who know when it's time to bring in others and to know what I don't know for which I need you to be the expert on, that is a relational self-awareness that goes a long way. That's what I'm trying to say. And given that we can't get on with everyone around us, what is your advice for making a functional, productive, professional relationship out of what might be quite bad or, or tetchy or, or just difficult personal relationships? I don't think that people want to get along with anybody. I think that what people need to feel are around three things. The people need to feel that they have a sense of agency. People need to feel that when they're told you're in charge, it's really what they're told and that there is not a hidden message behind the message. People need to feel that there's a sense of collegiality, solidarity and respect and they're not going to be undermined. So the issues have to do with power and control Care and closeness, i.e. trust, respect and recognition, i.e. integrity. 
Integrity, trust, and power or agency are probably the three main underlying issues that people grapple with. And if they have that, then there are people they like, people they go for drinks with, and people that once the work is done, they can go and uh, gossip about. That is old. That already sounds <laughs> like, like there are several tears uh, going on here, whether we, whether we like it or, or not. Do we have to accept that we simply don't like some people? Is that all right? Yes, of course. But it's always interesting to ask oneself, why don't I like that person? What is it that that person evokes in me, triggers in me? I mean, it's never, it's never just arbitrary. So to be curious is one of the very important ingredients about relational intelligence. What's happening to me? Why is this person rubbing me wrong like this? Because every time there's a conversation, that person takes charge, dominates the whole thing, hijacks the whole thing, and it's like I'm just sitting there like jello. You know, that's a classic one. And what about that is really bothering you? And what happens that you don't actually step in and say, let me say something, I have something to say too. Why would you rather sit and stew in your resentment than actually challenge them? So how's, how is this doing this project, particularly working on the, the workplace rather than the, the home front or the romantic front? Has it changed the way that, that you work, and the way that, that you look at how you go about your relationships? For me, the big transition is that I worked for more than 30 years as a solo practitioner in my psychotherapy office, where I still am, but now I have a team of 12. <laughs> and I have never managed people in my life. I've done everything alone. I just wrote my, my newsletter of this week about what was that change about. You know, allowing other people to step in and to help me is not something that I necessarily have experience with. So I think just thinking relationally, not just what I need my staff to do, but what they need from me, how I come across, uh, you know, the things I need to change, how we deal as a relational intelligence company with our own boundaries. Yes, you cannot be doing this work without also thinking about how it applies, how it applies to you. I think that, but, you know, one, one thing that is really so significant is why some of this thing is so central in work today is because emotions were not really part of the vocabulary of the workplace. Transparency, authenticity, belonging, trust, that was not a vocabulary that was really interesting to the workforce. Today it is. This is not something I'm making up. This is something that I am responding to. And if you could give us one piece of relationship advice for everyone listening, for maybe for every manager, but for everyone who is being managed too, what would it be? I'm not going to give you a technique or a tactic. I'm going to give you a thought. If you want to change the other, the fastest route is to change yourself. Because a relationship is a feedback loop. If I always do X, you are bound to always do Y. If I don't want you to do Y, what is probably more conducive to your changing is me doing something else. You cannot continue to do the same if I change. And sooner or later, you will begin to do something else as well. If I'm always critical, I don't have to be surprised that you are defensive. If I don't want you to be defensive, instead of just telling you stop being defensive, maybe I can change the way I'm telling you what I have to say. It's quicker and it's more effective. Thank you very much, Esther Perel. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Some homework for all of us to be getting on with there, and we will let you know how Team Economist gets on with Esther's advice. 
And in the spirit of improving our relationships with you, the listeners, we'd like to get to know you a bit better. So please would you fill in our survey. It's at economist.com slash pod survey. And tell us about yourselves. And of course, what you think of us. For more of our journalism, you can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.